Section 21 of The Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Weiner. Chapter 13, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Here again, the texts are changed in order to bring forward a specious proof. It does not follow from anything that after the words, Preach the gospel to every creature, he said immediately afterward, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Nor can it in any way be said that one passage follows immediately after the other, since one thing is said by one evangelist, Mark, while the other is said by Matthew. Mark says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, which has no meaning of any transmission. But the words, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, Amen, are the concluding words of the gospel of Matthew and therefore it can by no means signify he wanted to transmit the power to them. But even if that meant what the theology wants it to mean, there is nothing to warrant the assertion that he encouraged with his presence all their future successors. That cannot be argued out of anything. Here is the second proof of this succession. F. Finally that, having in this manner clothed his apostles with divine power, he, on the other hand, very clearly and with terrible curses compelled all men and future Christians to receive the teaching and the sacraments from future apostles, and to obey their words. He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me, and he that despiseth me, despiseth he that sent me. Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I do not leave out a single word, and that is given out as a proof not only of the establishment of the hierarchy, but also of the succession. And it says, And that is why, even when the Lord ascended to heaven, Matthias was, by his indication, added to the eleven apostles in the place of Judas. And only by the voice of the Holy Ghost were Barnabas and Saul separated for the work whereunto our Redeemer had called them. This last proof, the meaning of which I absolutely fail to make out, contains the first part of the proofs as to why the hierarchy is considered as founded by Christ. After that follows proofs from the Acts and the Epistles. One would think that here it would be easier to find texts which might confirm the divine origin of the hierarchy, but again the same takes place. It turns out that in all the texts, quoted and not quoted, there is nowhere a word about those rites, as though it were a legal establishment, which the theology proclaims from the very first words. 2. Still more clearly is this intention of the Lord seen in the actions of the apostles who were guided by his Spirit. These actions are of two kinds, and both equally refer to the confirmation of the truth under discussion. The actions of the first kind are the following. a. The holy apostles constantly asserted their right and carried out the obligations which the Lord had enjoined upon them. In spite of all obstacles on the part of the enemies who tried to take that divine power from them. These references to the apostles, and especially to the Acts, are remarkable. The author does not write them out because he knows that if anything at all is to be deduced from them, it is the very opposite of what he is trying to prove. Every passage where Christ's disciples preach his teaching is adduced as proof that the hierarchy was established. For example, in Acts 4.19, Peter and John said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. The other references are of the same kind. Thus it goes on for two pages, from which it is clear to anyone who has read even a short seminary history of the church, that no one at any time during the first centuries of Christianity ascribed any special rights or powers to himself. Elders, presbyters, bishops, overseers, were appointed, and all those appellations meant one and the same thing, and were a human institution, which was diversified according to men and places. 
All that is evident from the texts which are quoted by the theology itself. After that follows the third part of the proofs, in which it says directly in the name of the Holy Fathers that this power was given to the hierarchy by Christ himself. But here we get the proofs only of the fact that the men who ascribed the power to themselves asserted quite arbitrarily that the power had passed to them from God, that is, what now our and any other hierarchy asserts at the present time. Here it says, B. The pastors who form that special class always deduced their power from Jesus Christ himself and called themselves the successors of the apostles and the representatives in the church of the Savior himself. Here, for example, are the words of Clement of Rome. Having received a full foreknowledge, the apostles appointed the above-mentioned men, that is, bishops and deacons, and at the same time handed down the rule that when they deceased, other experienced men should take up their ministry. St. Ignatius Theophorus Bishops are appointed in all corners of the world by the will of Jesus Christ. St. Arrhenius We can name those whom the apostles have placed as bishops and their successors over the churches down to our times, but they have taught nothing of the kind and know nothing of what the heretics have invented. For, if the apostles knew the secrets which they revealed only to the perfect and to no other, they so much the more certainly revealed them to those to whom they entrusted the churches themselves. For the apostles wished that those whom they left as their successors, transmitting to them their own ministration of the teaching, should be quite perfect and without a blemish in every respect. St. Cyprian We are the successors of the apostles, ruling the church of God by the same power. St. Ambrose the bishop represents in his person Jesus Christ and is the vicergant to the Lord. St. Jerome With us, the place of the apostles is occupied by the bishops. Having armed itself with these proofs, that is, with the bare assertions of those men who appropriated to themselves the divine power, that this power has been transferred to them from God, the theology now gives a direct definition of the church, a part of which, namely the words of Gregory the Divine, I have quoted before. After that, it says that there are three degrees of the ecclesiastic hierarchy, the episcopal, the presbyteral, and the diaconal, but it is necessary to remark that there are no more of them. The utterances of the fathers of the church confirm that. Clement of Alexandria. The degrees of bishops, presbyters, and deacons which exist in the church are, in my opinion, the representation of the angelic order. Origin. Paul speaks to the rulers and chiefs of the churches, that is, to those who judge the people who are in the church, namely to the bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Eusebius of Caesarea Three orders, the first of the presiding officers, the second of the presbyters, the third of the deacons. 174. There is a detailed description of the different orders of the spiritual persons among themselves and in relation to their flocks. The bishop is the chief overseer in his own particular church. First of all, he has the power over the hierarchy under his rule and over the clergy. All priests and servants of the church are obliged to obey his injunctions, and without his permission nothing is done in the church. All are subject to his surveillance and judgment, in consequence of which he may subject them to various punishments. In addition to the clergy, the whole flock which is entrusted to his care is subject to the spiritual power of the bishop. He is under obligation to watch over the execution in his eparchy of the divine laws and church commandments. He has more especially and preeminently the right to bind and loose, according to the rules of the holy apostles, the holy councils, and according to the unanimous testimony of the ancient teachers of the church. For that reason, the apostles so forcefully impressed all the believers with the necessity of obeying the bishops. The presbyters also have the power to bind and loose, and in general to feed the flock of God which is entrusted to them. But this power they receive from their archpastor by means of the sacramental ordination. Some chosen ones are, by will of the bishop, admitted in general to bear with him the burden of the church government and even form with him for that purpose a permanent council. 
But according to an old expression, they can only serve in place of the bishop's eyes, and in themselves without his consent can do nothing. But the deacons have not received from the Lord the right to bind and loose, and so in themselves do not have any spiritual power over the believers. But the deacons may be the eye and ear of the bishops and presbyters, and also the hands of the presiding officers, with their consent, for the purpose of performing ecclesiastic duties. After all which has been said, we find quite comprehensible the high names and expressions which are applied to the bishops, such as that they are alone, in the strict sense, the successors of the apostles, that the church is resting firmly on its bishops as on supports, that a bishop is the living image of God on earth, and by force of the sacramental power of the Holy Ghost, a prolific source of all the sacraments of the church, by means of which he procures salvation. And so he is as necessary for the church as breathing is for man, as the sun is for the world. That in the bishops is the center of the believers who belong to his eparchy, that he is even the particular head of his spiritual realm. That finally, as Cyprian says, the bishop is in the church, and the church, which is subject to him, is in the bishop, and that he who is not in communion with the bishop is not in the church. The pastors of various degrees, united among themselves, decide, and the people have to obey. And all that which is called the church, not merely as an ornament of speech, but in reality, that is, that organ which expresses the faith which men must follow, that church is the bishops. 175. This article shows that the church is the bishops, and that the higher power above them is an assembly of all the bishops, which is called a council, that is, of several bishops. In this article there is a very detailed account, such as is given in the statute about the justices of the peace, about the relations of all these persons among themselves. From this may be seen, without any new proofs, that the right to sit on councils, both locally and ecumenical, and the right to pass on ecclesiastical matters, belong exclusively to the bishops as the head of the separate churches and the presbyters who in everything depend on their local archpastors may be admitted to the councils only by their consent, and then only as counselors or assistants or their plenipotentiaries, and may occupy only the second place. Even so may be admitted the deacons, who must stand before the face of the bishops. For this reason, the councils were by the holy fathers of the church generally called assemblies of the bishops. The second ecumenical council, called the symbol of faith, which was composed at the first council, the faith of 318 holy fathers, for that was the number of bishops present at that council. The council at Trello called the definitions of faith of all the previous ecumenical councils, profession or faith of the Holy Fathers, the bishops, according to the number of those who met at these councils. Then comes Article 176, in which we have an exposition of Christ being the head of the church. That is apparent, one, from the fact that Christ before the ascension said, not to the church but to his disciples, I am with you to the end of the world, amen. In the theology, the following words are added to that, and with all your future successors, and that is taken as a proof that all those who call themselves the interpreters of Christ regard themselves as his successors. 2. From this fact in particular, that although he entrusted the power of teaching to the apostles and their successors, he told them to call him only the supreme teacher, who invisibly through them taught the believers. And so he said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. This passage with its references is striking. I thought that nothing in the theology would startle me, but the boldness with which this verse is quoted, and with which an opposite significance is given to it, is staggering. Here is the verse, or rather the whole passage. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. This very verse, these words, which are said directly against those who call themselves teachers, fathers, and masters, 
This verse is connected with the verse, which has absolutely nothing in common with the first, and is adduced as proof that those very teachers, who call themselves so against the command of Christ, have Christ as their head. After that follows proofs that the Church is one, holy, Catholic and universal, and apostolic. In Division 3, about the universal Church, it says, 3. The special privilege of the Catholic or universal Church consists in this, that in matters of faith it cannot err in any way, nor deceive, nor be deceived. But like the divine scripture, it is infallible and has eternal dignity, a privilege of which enough has been said by us in the proper place. The moral application of this dogma for the first time results directly from the dogma. The application of the dogma consists in obeying the church. 1. The Lord Jesus founded his church that it might regenerate men and educate them for eternal life, and so our relation to it has to be that of children to their mother. We are obliged to love the church of Christ as our spiritual mother and to obey it in everything as our spiritual mother. In particular, our Lord Jesus, too, enjoined the church to keep and teach to men its divine doctrine. It is our duty to receive this teaching from the mouth of the God-given church and to understand it precisely as the church, which is instructed by the Holy Ghost, understands it. 3. He entrusted to the church the performance of mysteries and in general sacraments for the sanctification of men. It is our duty in awe to make use of the saving mysteries and all the other sacraments which it performs over us. 4. He trusted the church with the guidance of men and with confirming in them their godly lives. It is our duty without muttering to submit to the inspiration of such a guide and wholly to execute all the commands of the church. 5. He himself established the hierarchy and priestly order in the church and pointed out the difference between the flock and the pastors and showed each a definite place in service. It is the duty of all members of the church, of the pastors and the flock, to be that which they are called to be, and to keep well in mind that we have gifts differing according to the grace which is given to us, and that to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So that is what the church is as an establishment, as a keeper and announcer of truths, of dogmas. That on which the whole theology is based is a self-constituted hierarchy, and in distinction from all others, a hierarchy which regards itself alone as holy and infallible as being the only one that has the right to preach the divine revelation. Thus, the whole doctrine of the church, as the theology teaches it, is all based on establishing the conception of the church as the only true keeper of divine truth, in order to substitute for this conception that of a certain definite hierarchy, that is, to connect a human institution, the outgrowth of pride, malice, and hatred, which utters dogmas and instructs the flock only in that teaching which it alone regards as true with the conception of the assembly of all believers who have invisibly at their head Christ himself, the mystical body of Christ. To that, the whole teaching of the theology reduces itself. This teaching asserts that the only true church, the body of Christ, is it alone. The train of thought is as follows. Having collected the disciples, God revealed the truth to them and promised to be with them. That truth is complete and divine. The truth which we preach is the same truth. Even leaving out the discussion, the fact that for every man who has read Holy Scripture and who has seen the arguments which the theology adduces in proof, it is evident that Christ never established any hierarchy, any church in the sense in which the theology understands it. Leaving out of consideration that for everyone who reads history, it is evident that many men have imagined themselves to be such churches, while they contended with one another and did one another harm. There involuntarily rises the question, on what grounds does our hierarchy consider itself to be the true one? and the other hierarchies and assemblies not to be true. Why is the Nicene symbol an expression of the true Holy Church, and why not the Arian symbol, which our hierarchy has been contending against, 
For were not the bishops, partisans of Arius, as much ordained by succession from the apostles as the partisans of the Nicene symbol? And if this ordainment does not save men from error, why is our church the keeper of truth and not of untruth? The theology does not even make an attempt at answering this, for by its doctrine it cannot give any answer, since subjects that are arbitrarily passed upon cannot be proved. And so the hierarchy says only that it is right because it is holy and infallible, and it is holy and infallible because it is the follower of the hierarchy which has acknowledged the Nicene symbol. But why is the hierarchy which has acknowledged the Nicene symbol the true one? To that there is, and there can be, no answer, so that the recognition of the hierarchy, which calls itself the true, holy, only, universal, and apostolic church, is only an expression of a demand that faith should be put in it an assertion like the one made by a man who says, Upon my word, I am right. But this assertion is particularly weakened by the fact that every assertion of the hierarchy about being holy is always due to this, that another hierarchy, which on some point disagreed with it, says precisely the opposite and asserts that it is right, and to the words, it is permitted to us and to the Holy Ghost, replies that the Holy Ghost lives in it, something like what happens when two men swear, denying each other. All the theologians, no matter how they may try to conceal it, speak and do nothing else. The Church, the union of all believers, the body of Christ, is only an adornment of speech, in order to add importance to a human institution, the hierarchy and its assumed succession, upon which everything is built up. Remarkable and instructive in this respect are the attempts of the modern theologians, of Vinette and his followers, of Komyakov and his scions, to find new supports for the teaching about the Church, and to build up the definition of the Church not on the hierarchy, but on the whole assembly of the believers, on the flock. These new theologians, without noticing it themselves, in their attempts to make stable the tree which is planted without roots, make it fall entirely. These theologians deny the hierarchy and prove the falseness of that foundation, and they think that they are giving it a different foundation. But unfortunately, this other foundation is nothing but that sophism of theology under which it tries to conceal the crudity of its doctrine about the church being the hierarchy. That sophism the new theologians take for a foundation, and they completely overthrow the doctrine of the church, while they themselves are left with the most palatable sophism, but without a foundation. Their error is like this. The Church has received among believers two main meanings, one, that the Church is a human, temporal institution, and the other, that the Church is the totality of men living and dead who are united by one true faith. The first is a definite historical phenomenon, an assemblage of men subject to certain rules and regulations, and one from which statutes may issue. Whether I speak of the Catholic Church of such and such a year, or of the Roman or Greek Orthodox Church, I am speaking of certain people, the popes, the patriarchs, bishops who are organized in a certain manner and who in a certain way direct their flocks. The second is an abstract idea, and if I speak of the church in this sense, it is evident that attributes of time and place cannot be its definition, and under no circumstances can there be definite decrees expressed in definite words. The only definition of such a church as the carrier of divine truth is a correspondence with what is the divine truth. The equating of these two conceptions to each other, and the substitution of one for the other, has always formed a problem of all Christian confessions of faith. An assemblage of people wishing to convince others that it possesses the absolute truth asserts that it is holy and infallible. Its holiness and infallibility it builds on two foundations, on the manifestations of the Holy Ghost which find their expression in the holiness of the members of that community, and then in miracles, and on the legitimate succession of the teachership which proceeds from Christ. The first foundation does not stand criticism. Holiness cannot be measured or proved. Miracles are detected and proved deceptions, so miracles cannot be adduced as proofs. So there is left but one proof, the correct succession of the hierarchy. That too cannot be proved, but equally it cannot be refuted, 
so all the churches hold themselves on that foundation. On that argument alone do the churches at the present time hold themselves, and it is the only one on which they can hold themselves. If a Catholic, an Orthodox, an old ceremonialist affirm that they have the truth, they can incontrovertibly base their assertions only on the infallibility of the succession of the keepers of the tradition. The Catholic Church recognizes the Pope as the head of the hierarchy, and in its development inevitably had to acknowledge the infallibility of the Pope. The Greek Church could fail to recognize the Pope, but in not recognizing the necessity of that supreme member of the hierarchy, it could not help but recognize the infallibility of the hierarchy itself. Even so, the Protestant Church, in failing to recognize Catholicism during its decadence, could not help but recognize the infallibility of that hierarchy whose dogma it recognizes. For without the infallibility of the succession of the keepers of the tradition, it would have no foundation for the assertion of its truth. All the churches maintain themselves only by recognizing the infallibility of that hierarchy which they accept. You may not agree in saying that such and such a hierarchy is the only correct one, but when a man says that he accepts as true the hierarchy whose dogmas he accepts, you cannot prove to him the incorrectness of his dogmas. That is the only indestructible foundation, and so all the churches cling to it. Now the new theologians destroy this only foundation, thinking that they are substituting a better one for it. The new theologians say that the divine truth is kept not in the infallibility of the hierarchy, but in the totality of all believers who are united in love, and that only to men who are united in love is divine truth given, and that such a church is defined solely by faith and oneness in love and in concord. This reflection is good in itself, but unfortunately from it cannot be deduced a single one of the dogmas which the theologians profess. The theologians forget that in order to recognize a certain dogma, it was necessary to recognize tradition to be holy and definitely expressed in the decrees of the infallible hierarchy. But by rejecting the infallibility of the hierarchy, it is impossible to affirm anything, and there is not a single proposition of the church which could unite all the believers. The affirmation of these theologians that they recognize those decrees which express the faith of all undivided Christians and reject all the arbitrary decrees of the separate Christians is quite incorrect because there has never existed such a complete oneness of the Christians. Side by side with the Nicene symbol, there was the Arian symbol, and the Nicene symbol was not accepted by all, but only by one part of the hierarchy, and other Christians recognized that symbol only because they recognized the infallibility of the hierarchy which expressed it, saying, it pleases us in the Holy Ghost. But there has never been a time when all the Christians agreed on anything, and the councils were assembled for the very purpose of getting in some manner away from the controversies about the dogmas which divided the Christians. Thus, the oneness in love has in the first place never existed, and in the second place, this oneness in love, by its very essence, cannot be expressed or defined in any way. The new theologians affirm that by church they understand the union of all believers, the body of Christ, and by no means the infallible hierarchy in a human institution. But the moment they touch on matters of the church, it becomes evident that by church they understand, and must of necessity understand, a human institution. The cares of all these theologians, beginning with Luther, about the relation of church and state, prove conclusively that these theologians understand by church a still more debased human institution than is understood by the Catholics or the Orthodox. The church theologians are more consistent in their discussions. The church, according to their doctrine, is the bishops and the pope. Thus they speak, and so it is. The pope and bishops must, according to their teaching, stand at the head of all worldly institutions, and there can be no question about the relation of the church to the state. The church is always the head of everything. Among the Protestants, there appears, in spite of the apparently high significance which they ascribe to the church, the question about the relations of church and state. They are all busy now separating or freeing the church from the oppression of the state, and all of them complain of the wretched condition of divine truth, and of Christ at its head, who is in captivity under Bismarck, Gambetta, and so forth. 
but they forget that if the state can exert any influence on the church, it is evident that in speaking of the church we are speaking not of the divine truth which has Christ at its head, but of a human institution. Men who believe in the teaching of the church cannot base their faith on anything but the legality, the regularity of the succession of the hierarchy. But the regularity and legality of the succession of the hierarchy cannot be proved in any way. No historical investigations can confirm it. On the contrary, historical investigations not only fail to confirm the regularity of any hierarchy, but show directly that Christ did not establish an infallible hierarchy, that in the first times it did not exist, that that system arose in the time of the decline of the Christian teaching, during that time of hatred and malice on account of some interpretation of dogmas, and that all the most varied Christian teachings have asserted just as positively their rights in the regularity of the succession in their church, and have denied that regularity in others, so that the whole doctrine of the theology, which in regard to the church is not verified in any respect, comes down for me to the desire of certain persons to advance in opposition to other teachings, which have just such pretensions and with which just as much right assert that they are in the right, their own teaching as the only one which is true and holy. So far I have not seen in this teaching anything true and holy, and not even anything rational and good. The attempts of these theologians, especially of Arkomyakov, to overthrow the foundation of the church, the infallibility of the hierarchy, and to put in its place the mystical conception of all the believers who are united in love, is the last convulsion of this church teaching, a support which brings the whole structure to its fall. Indeed, a remarkable quid pro quo takes place here. To conceal its crude assertion that the church is the infallible hierarchy, the theology cloaks itself with false definitions of the church in the sense of an assemblage of all the believers. The new theologians grasp this external and false definition, and imagining that they are basing their church upon it, destroy the one essential support of the church, the infallibility of the hierarchy. Indeed, for anyone who does not even wish to trouble himself to investigate the arguments of the church about the infallibility of the hierarchy, it is sufficient to read all that which the Protestant literature has worked out in this respect. The foundation of the infallibility of the hierarchy is destroyed in the name of the foundation of the church as an assemblage of believers united in love. However, an assemblage of believers united in love can obviously not define any dogma or Nicene symbol, as Komyakov and other theologians believe. An assemblage of believers united in love is such a general conception that upon it no common creed or dogma common to all the Christians can be based, so that the work of the new theologians, if they are at all consistent, reduces itself to this, that the only foundation of the church, the infallibility of the church, is destroyed. But the new one is left what it was, a mystical conception from which can follow no creed, much less a confession of faith. The only foundation is the infallibility of the hierarchy, for those who believe in it. End of chapter 13 End of section 21